Okay, we begin today looking at the prophets themselves. We've spent the entire series talking about the what we'll call the prophetic experience. And today is dedicated to talking about the prophets themselves, the context of the prophecies and historical realities surrounding this whole era of Jewish history. We spoke already about two places in the Torah where prophecy is mentioned. One place was in Parshad Re'eh, speaking about a false prophet. Another place was in the book of Bamidbar, talking about the difference between the prophecy of Moshe and everyone else. And today we're going to begin with another very, very important place where prophecy and prophets appear in the Torahs in Parshat Shoftim in the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy. And the context that it appears is, is very important because we see something that we could actually spend quite a bit of time talking about because it's quite interesting that in Parshat Shoftim, there are mentioned what we would call the ancient balance of power in Jewish society. Just as we know from learning from civics that one of the principles of democracy is what we call a separation of powers and, <coughs> and uh, checks and balances between different power centers. Do we have a... Yes, between the Prime Minister, the Knesset, the President, and Rabbanud, right? <laughs> right? Everyone has their, their powers, uh, the Bagat, uh, which seems to think that it is all of the above. Um, and That's the Supreme Court. Yeah, the Supreme Court. So in Parshat Shoftim uh, is mentioned the the powers and the reality of the Kohen, the priests, the Shoftim. The Parsha begins with the judges, the court system, the Sanhedrin, and then it goes on to the king one of the only places in the Torah that a king is mentioned is what are the powers and checks and balances and limits on a king and then the prophet and these are all mentioned pretty much one right after the other and so we see that if, if we would study this in great depth and learn all the halakha as to what are the, the powers and the limitations of each one of these uh, powers of center powers then we would have a picture of how Jewish society would work so in this context the prophet is mentioned and he's mentioned after a paragraph that is inserted about the forbidden practices of reading the, of trying to read the future it's a list of different practices that other nations do in order to try to predict the future and we're told that we cannot do these things 
And then it says that God says, I will raise a prophet in your midst. If you want to know the future, this is a legitimate way, is if the prophet speaks in my name. The question is, how do we know if the prophet is actually speaking in God's name? So the Torah says, if the prophet says something will happen, and it does not happen, then he is not speaking in my name. He or she is not speaking in my name. Now this is a little bit tricky because I'm actually jumping ahead a little bit, but since I mentioned that, there is an extremely important general principle about prophecy. All of the, well we'll call them the, the bad prophecies, the ones full of danger and judgment. And gloom and doom. And gloom and doom do not have to happen. All of the good prophecies about redemption and everything that goes along with that are guaranteed to happen. This is a general principle. Why is that? Because the prophet, when he gives these dire predictions, it's always predicated on the reality if you don't do tshuva even if it's not said explicitly it's said so many times in the, in the prophets that it's assumed that if you do tshuva then these things don't have to happen they may happen and they may happen even if, if there's partial tshuva but if there's real tshuva they don't have to happen. This we already discussed. This is Yonah's mistake. Is when he <coughs> was told Nineveh will be overturned. And so he assumed it can only mean one thing. That they are physically overturned. But then when Nineveh did tshuva, sincere tshuva, so this word overturned meant that Nineveh is, has turned itself around in Shuvah. And therefore, all of the dire predictions didn't have to happen. That's a well-known case of this happening. But this is a very important general principle. As you read some of these predictions, and the truth is, the truth is, almost all of them did happen. But if Yonah was the prophet, how would he not know the cloud? It's not that he didn't know the cloud. His prophecy obviously wasn't on the, the mm-hmm. clearest level. And so therefore, he was mistaken. And because you asked that, I'll remind everyone. It's very tricky. Mm-hmm. We said that spiritual experience is open to everyone including people who are, have very unclarified consciousnesses. And so therefore, if one hooks into this power of the spiritual experience, remember it's always filtered through the imagination, the mind. 
So therefore, one has a very, very high experience, spiritual experience, but then when it gets filtered through the mind, if the mind isn't sufficiently clarified, it will come out, so to speak, wrong. Like Jerusalemic right. syndrome. It will, it will come through wrong. Yeah. This principle, I'm hearing it as being a very radical principle in that in the ancient world, my imagination tells me that either it's black or white. And when I think about the Sharia laws and things of that sort, it's either black or white. I think. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong about it. But here is this principle that, that, uh, that you can change a future, you can change a reality if you do something uh, holy, essentially. So can you right. tell me, in the context of, of the times, is this a radical idea? Because it seems to me that it, that it probably is. It, it's what's called tshuva. I understand. We could, if, you, if we want to call tshuva a radical idea, maybe we can. Well, now, this tshuva can change yeah. reality. But we can, we can determine in one of two ways. We could either say that the people do tshuva and change a reality, or what the prophet is revealing is one of many possible outcomes. But when the prophet reveals a prophecy of doom, what they're saying is, if everything follows the current course of events, this is what will happen this is what will happen but we don't have to follow the current course of events okay actually when we talk about Isaiah I'll, I'll, I'll bring up a story that will show that for the individual okay yeah doesn't it it feels to me like when a destructive prophecy is given over that it really is inherently good because it's only a prophecy that's verbalized, right? Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also gives the opportunity for the truth. Right. So, it's so you know, actually, as you're saying that, reminds me if you remember in in the dream series, one of the opinions in the Gemara is better a bad dream than a good dream. Why? It's a good dream. It's nice. You might. Again, we're not talking about like a revelation, mm-hmm. right? But a nice dream. You feel good for a couple of hours and you probably forget it. A bad dream is it, it haunts you. It, it makes you look inside and do tshuva. That's what the commentaries say. So therefore, it's better a bad dream that will get you to change, improve, move on in life than a good dream that like feels good for a little while and then you forget it. And we've learned yeah. that bad dream enables people to do a mitzvah of making a dream good. Right? Yes, yes. <laughs> also. <laughs> also. Okay, so in this context, it, uh, it says, I will raise a prophet from your midst. So from these words, from your midst, the uh, oral tradition learns out means in your midst in Israel 
because the context is we're supposed to live in Israel. The exile isn't supposed to happen. It happened because we didn't act accordingly. So therefore the general principle is that prophecy only occurs in Israel. Now there are exceptions that we'll get today that Ezekiel he prophesied in exile. So the answer is because he started his prophecy in Israel. And so therefore since he started his uh, mission as a prophet in Israel when he went into exile he was able to continue it. If you remember from last week one of the controversial aspects of Rabbi Avram Abulafia is that he claimed to have prophecy and he was outside of Israel. He never was in Israel. And so that was very controversial and he, he, he felt that this was not this was not a literal understanding. It meant if you had the consciousness of Eretz Israel, then even outside of Israel, even if you've never been there, you could reach prophecy. But you had to have what's called the consciousness of Eretz Israel. And in Shoftim, one of the very interesting uh, ideas, when God is saying, I will give you a prophet, meaning you don't need all these magical practices. I will give you a prophet. In the text it says, like the people asked at Mount Sinai. What's the context? Remember, they came to Moshe and said, you talk to God. This is too scary for us. We can't live. You talk to God, and then God will talk to us. So in Shoftim, God says, that was an okay request. That was an okay request. And so therefore, Moshe, you're not going to be around forever. Therefore, in the future, there will be prophets that I will speak to, and they will speak to the people. So it's on the same model as, as Mount Sinai. Now let's talk a little bit about the, the reality that the prophets lived in. There were certain themes that run through all of the prophets. And this goes including Moshe, who his prophecies are really given over in the book of Devarim. And here, literally, God is speaking through him, which is, again, different than the other prophets, where God would reveal certain things, but it still had to go through their consciousness, their imagination, their symbology. Whereas by Moshe, it was just, he was a clear channel. <clears throat> but it says in, in, in the Gemara that all the prophets only, in a sense, extended the themes that Moshe already revealed in Divine. And what are these themes? Exile and redemption, threat and hope. Hope. These are the strands through which all prophecy 
after Moshe it's a tapestry of these things so if you look in the basically the three major prophets which we're going to talk about today Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the twelve minor prophets you'll see it especially in the three major ones because in the twelve minor some of the books are quite short so you, you don't see the, the full tapestry but in the three major ones it goes back and forth uh, they will expound the most hopeful optimistic messianic vision of the future and the next chapter like the world is about to end and back and forth so one thing we have to mention here also is and we'll get into it a little bit more I'm just going to mention it now in each one of the books they're not necessarily chronological you have to understand that when we read Isaiah from chapter 1 to the end it's not necessarily that that's how he gave over the prophecies that is how the, the, the books were uh, <coughs> compiled and one has to do an enormous amount of study to understand how the puzzle fits together so <coughs> if the prophets only uh, oh, excuse me I want to mention um, one other theme and that is justice that is justice so if the prophets only gave over ideas about a glorious future and hope and uh, spiritual enticement so they would have been the most popular people around but because virtually all of them came with a message of to the king and to the people that they needed to do tshuva that justice was not being served that God was not happy and that impending danger and destruction will follow so we have to understand that the prophets were by and large extremely unpopular many if not most of them were either killed or imprisoned or hounded uh, so when we we speak about the prophets we have to understand that uh, there was a reality that went along with it and that's why sometimes in, let's say like Yonah is one of the clearest cases but also uh, uh, Jeremiah when he was chosen he, he didn't want to do it because he knew, he knew what it meant he knew what it meant Isaiah he steps forward and says Hineni I am here whatever you want from me but we can understand why a prophet wouldn't like, be jumping for the position because it was not a, a nice reality it was not a nice reality. Isaiah was from a royal family. He was the uncle. He was the nephew of one king, a cousin to another king. And in the end, he was killed by his own family. In the end, by the next generation. 
Shakespeare didn't make this up. Jeremiah spent a good time in jail in a pit, a literal pit. And then he was, he was uh, really hounded into exile into Egypt. Uh, uh, Zechariah was killed in the temple. No. So it was, it was a heavy... Was Shmuel an exception in that sense? Um, okay, Shmuel was not killed and he was not imprisoned, but he complained bitterly to the people when they asked for a king. He also felt <clears throat> that the people didn't understand who he was in relationship to them, that they would ask for a king. So, okay, he wasn't he wasn't killed or hounded, <clears throat> but he also was. He, 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 he was very and he expresses it very openly his bitterness very open he didn't, he didn't hide it at the time of Eliyahu so Ahaz and Jezebel killed something like 400 prophets they killed something like 400 until um, Eliyahu escaped to the Sinai and he complains to God he says they've killed all the prophets I only, I'm the only one left I'm the only one left and, and so therefore it becomes a bit paradoxical or uh, ironic that we look to the prophets as beacons of morality ethics, hope uh, wisdom but in their context it's difficult there's an expression that very much applies today it's quoted by many people it, it says in the Talmud Ain Navi Bi'iro there, there's no prophet in his own town in other words and, and you see this all the time you see great rabbis living in a certain city in that city no one gives them honor no one recognizes their greatness no one appreciates it no one comes to hear them and then they go out everyone flocks to them it says in the Talmud Ain Navi there's no prophet in his own city and it still applies today unfortunately but it is, it is highly ironic that in retrospect, and we see this throughout history, how, for example, Maimonides was tremendously controversial in his day. Tremendously controversial. We spoke about Avram Abulafia. Tremendously. The Baal Shem Tov. Right? Rabbi Nachman. Rabbi Nachman was... was did not have an easy life. He did not have an easy life. And then we see that, and then with a little, the Ramchal. Mm-hmm. Ramchal was literally chased all over Europe. He ran all over Europe. And then with just sometimes 25 years, 50 years, 100 years, mm-hmm. we tend uh, to look at it very different. In our day, we could say Reb Shlomo. Mm-hmm. Shlomo, this 13 years um, perspective, a uh, completely different story. Yeah, okay, so, so I'm just trying to paint in very, very broad 
uh, pictures the reality of the prophet. Could I just ask yeah. a short question? Um, is it like when the when all the prophets were getting hounded and they didn't really want to be prophets? Is that after all the schools of prophecy, where there were so many people trying to reach the level of prophecy? I mean, is it is it later, or was that still going on? No, they, they were they were happening. They were happening at the same time. They were happening at the same time. Um, which you might say, though, that's interesting because... Right? Why would anybody want to go to prophecy? Right, right. right. <laughs> so I think the answer to that, the answer to that is that, which, which still applies today, a, a Jewish neshama wants to be close to God. Wants to be close to God. And so... You could ask, let's say, um, at the time, and this just popped into my head, the time of Rebbe Nachman. Rebbe Nachman's followers were really, people were like so down. And she said, why would anyone want to be a follower of Rebbe Nachman? Because he saw, he saw in his teachings something that lit up their neshama. And they made a cheshbon, they made an accounting like, I don't care. Uh, I'm willing to go through whatever I have to go through. I, I'm connected to Rabbi Nachman. It's just like a little example. So it's the same thing with the prophets. You know, someone meets Eliyahu and Navi, right, and is like, wow, I, I want some of this. And then they, they, they come to understand. Also, this is just a, a, a free flow association. When someone comes to convert, so one of the first things you say and, and even at the conversion you're obligated to say do you understand Jewish history? Do you understand what the Jewish people have been through? And you have to, you have to go through like the worst of Jewish history. Do you understand that by becoming Jewish, you become part of this uh, destiny, this this fate. That you have to, and, and I, I, I've never heard of someone like right at the conversation. Okay, I changed my mind, but but uh, you 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 have to lay this in front of a person. It's like okay, the. the Shabbos, wow, Pesach, right, lighting candles, it's all beautiful. But you're buying into a lot more than that. So it's the same thing, why would, why would someone want to? Because it's like, my, my neshama is Jewish, I want to be Jewish. I'm willing to take that on. I'm willing to take that on. So it's the same kind of answer why would someone want to be a prophet well, I mean I understand why they would want to and what they're what they're hoping for but at, but then it's like it seems like at the moment I mean I don't know the, the history of each prophet but at the moment that God says that, okay I, I am going to choose you but then they back out and they don't want it no okay uh, so, uh, Yonah tried no Yonah tried he may be one of the people who was was hoping he, maybe he was just someone who got chosen randomly he wasn't in the whole like uh, prophecy apprenticeship program <laughs> so what, what I'll answer though is remember what we've learned many 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 times according to the Ramchal the definition of prophecy is not dependent on God speaking to you right. so in other words someone could think I just want to be close to God I want to 
expand my consciousness it didn't necessarily mean that they thought that I'm going to reach the top where God is actually going to come and give me a mission and an unpopular mission right? I would say that that's not what was the first thing in their con- it was just like I, I want, to, I want the, the, the prophetic experience and let's imagine that most people go into this when they're young when people are optimistic and idealistic and that's what they were looking for which is legitimate not everyone thought like this might mean down the line that I'll reach such a high level that God will choose me to come to the people and the king and tell them how off they are that's not just imagine I never really uh, uh, coalesce these thoughts but yeah Okay, so let's learn a little bit about Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. So the first thing is, the, when we, we talk about the prophets, so these include the judges, by the way. Even though we call it the book of Judges, and then we have uh, Shmuel Aleph, Shmuel Bet, Samuel 1, Samuel 2, and then Kings 1, Kings 2, and then we have Isaiah Jeremiah, Ezekiel but we should know that the judges were also prophets many of them many of them were also prophets so in other words the, the, call it the era of prophecy lasted longer than what we might think as far as the chronological I'm only going to mention a few things because like I said it, it takes enormous amount of study to actually understand how it all works so Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are in chronological order but it's, it's, it's all uh, is there overlap? yes there's overlap with, with Jeremiah and Ezekiel they were basically prophesying around the same time and the thing that makes it a little bit confusing is that the, the 12 minor prophets some of them were before Isaiah for example Amos Amos is before Isaiah but he only appears later why? is because these three are considered the most important of the prophets say the three again please Isaiah Jeremiah and Ezekiel and if you look in any Bible, any Tanakh, that's the order another example is Hosea who's one of the longer of the twelve minor prophets not longer, his book is one of the longer he was prophesying at the same time as Isaiah and what's interesting is Isaiah was prophesying for Yehuda and Yerushalayim and Hosea was prophesying for the kingdom of Israel at the same time remember there, was a, there were like two different countries at that point unfortunately there were like two different countries so here they're prophesying at the same time but Hosea only appears in, in the twelve minor prophets so I'm just only mentioning this that we understand that we can't read it totally chronological and in the books themselves they are not necessarily chronological 
And some of the prophecies of Isaiah at the end of the book might have been before the opening. But they were done because if you look uh, carefully, there, there are scenes. Uh, blocks of chapters will go according to certain things. In other words, a number of very good prophecies that he might have said at different times in his life are put together in a block. And then some of the not-so-good prophecies are also put together in blocks. Again, you have to read all the commentaries to understand the full uh, implication of this. Now, the book of Isaiah, according to the Talmud, was written not by Isaiah. It was written by Chezkiyahu and, and his advisors and people surrounding him. So the story I wanted to tell about, about the tshuva, uh, it's a well-known story in the Gemara, it's an awesome story. Isaiah comes to Chizkiyahu. Chizkiyahu is the king at the time that Sancherev is uh, takes away the ten tribes, and now he's threatening Yehuda as well. And Isaiah is telling the people like this is what's going to happen, and a miracle occurs, and Sancherev a plague breaks out. And Sancherev's army is decimated, and and they leave. And these are all according to the prophecies of Isaiah. But at one point, Isaiah comes to the king, and he says, prepare yourself, because you're going to die. Why am I going to die? Because you haven't been uh, doing the mitzvah, Urur Uruvu. You, you haven't tried to have children. So Chizkiyahu says to him, well there's a reason for it. Because I'm also a little bit of a prophet and I can see that all my children are going to turn out bad. And therefore, I don't want to bring these children into the world. So, and this whole Gemara takes a lot of thought. I'm only mentioning, we're not going to go into the the implications of this Gemara. So Isaiah says, I'm sorry, that's not your business. God gave you a mitzvah to do. That's not your cheshbon. It's not your accounting to, to say that you see in the future they're not going to turn out good. So then Chizkiyahu says, but I'm not going to listen to you for another reason. In the end, he did listen to him, listen to this, and he married Isaiah's daughter. <laughs> and who did they have? Menashe, who became one of the evilest of all the kings. But, in Menashe's old age, he does true tshuva. He does true tshuva. And according to tradition, who was Isaiah killed by? Menashe. So he says, but I'm not going to listen to you for another reason. Because I have a tradition that even if the sword is on your neck, one doesn't stop asking 
for God to save them, for God's mercy. So it says he turned to the wall. This is one of the traditions why uh, many people have a tradition of standing in front of a wall when they daven. It says he turned to the wall and he prayed. Yeah, and he lived another 15 years. This is a very complicated and deep comment. So here's an example of um, Isaiah said, "Prepare yourself to die. You're going to die. That's it." end of deal and he says no no my prayer can supersede your prophecy do we understand the wall to be that repeated in any other historical I think with our nose into the crevices of the wall I think that's the source though that is the the, we'll call it the biblical source for for that tradition to daven near a wall there might be other places it's mentioned also but I, be, I believe that that's the source brought for that tradition it's a very complex enigmatic and deep um, Gomorrah so I'm just bringing, bringing it out to see how complicated this whole, this whole matter of, of, of prophecy no prophecy problem. can be I think it's also in the Book of Kings, I'm not mistaken, where it says it turns... Yeah, yeah, it's in the Book of Kings. Okay, now, just one other thing about the chronology here is the chronology is like this. The Book of Joshua, Judges, Samuel 1, Samuel 2, Kings 1, Kings 2, and then we go to Isaiah... Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But the interesting in the Gomorrah says, who wrote the book of Kings? It was Jeremiah. So you might think that Jeremiah should come after the book of Kings. So, Abarbanel gives five reasons why Isaiah is first. Because again, the book of Kings is written by Jeremiah. So you would think Jeremiah would be right afterwards. But Isaiah comes and then Jeremiah. So the Abarbanel gives five reasons. Number one is because, truthfully, Isaiah was the first chronologically. In other words, Isaiah fits into the book of Kings. Actually towards the beginning of the book of Kings. So chronologically, Isaiah does come before Jeremiah. So that's one reason. The second one is because Isaiah, as I mentioned before, was from a kingly family. And it was considered because of his status as not just a prophet, but coming from a family of kings also, that he would deserve to come first, even if it wasn't chronological, as the Abarbanel implies. But third, and this is very, very important, is that of all of the prophets, except for Moshe, Isaiah is considered to have reached the highest level of prophecy. And it's, I'm not sure if it's in the Gemara or a Midrash, that the prophecies of Isaiah, he's, he's compared to a city dweller, where Ezekiel is compared to a village dweller. 
What's the difference? Both of them give descriptions of their vision. Isaiah does it in just a very short amount of time. It doesn't reveal that much, but it reveals a, a bit the fact that we say every day, Kadosh, 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 Hashem Sabakot, Melokala Arts Kavodok comes from Isaiah in his description of his vision that he sees. But still, it's relatively short. Ezekiel, it's like he goes into great detail. So they say Isaiah is like a city dweller. He lives in the city of the king. He sees the king all the time. So his description of the king is very uh, short because in a sense he assumes like everyone knows. Like everyone, doesn't everyone see the king? And Ezekiel is like a village dweller. He doesn't see the king very often. He comes to the big city, he sees the king and he's blown away. And he wants to describe it in tremendous detail. So that's something that the, the Abarbanel uh, brings as a third reason why Isaiah is first. And he brings a second reason. That we already learned this, that in the book of Bamidbar, when God says to, Mo, to Miriam and Aaron what the difference is, is they say, we're all also prophets. So God explains Moshe is different. Him I speak to face to face. All the other prophets I speak to in a vision or a dream. So it's considered that the vi- a vision is a higher level of prophecy than a dream. And in the actual text of Isaiah, Yabarbanel points out that it's clear that when he's describing his prophecies and the way God is speaking to him, it's more from visions than dreams. What's the difference? Vision is more of a, a more of a conscious, uh, the, the prophet's in a more of a conscious state than when in a dream. In a dream, it's really like a, a person sleeping. They lose complete control of their, of their senses. How many years after Moshe is Isaiah? About 600 years later. Approximately 600 years later. The fourth reason he brings is the content of Isaiah's prophecies are considered the greatest because the Abarbanel counts 15 what he calls favorable prophecies. He counts 10 in Ezekiel and six in Jeremiah. And the minor prophets, simply these are books are much shorter, have less. So in other words, Isaiah, more than all the other prophets, is a, a prophecies of hope. And therefore, I don't have an exact number of all of the Haftars. There are more Haftars in the book of Isaiah than any other particular book because they, 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 they came and gave hope to this day. How can we see this? At, at the entrance of the United Nations, there was a quote from Isaiah. 
In other words, until this day, and not just for the Jewish people, for the world, the, the words of Isaiah are, are inspirational. Uh, a nation shall not lift up a sword against nation. That, that whole quote. They shall uh, turn their, their, their swords into plowshares. Yeah. And the fifth reason is, and I, I, I can't explain this in, in great detail because I didn't have time to research it, but he says that in the prophecies of Isaiah are many allusions, hints, and references to the world to come. He counts 14 different principles connected to the world of come more than all the, all the other prophets. So he says for all those reasons, that's why Isaiah is the first of the three major prophets. Yeah, all these five reasons are from the Barbanel, who lived approximately 600 years ago. Now let's talk a little bit about Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Isaiah is in the, like the middle of the first temple, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel both saw the destruction of the first temple end of the first temple Isaiah is approximately 750 BCE Jeremiah is approximately 600 BCE now what's interesting is on Tisha B'av, in the morning service after the service we spend a number of hours saying what are called keynote uh, dirges, lamentations uh, poetry of 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 sorrow the oldest historical one of all of them comes from Jeremiah and in fact in it is the word Kina from which we call all other keynote because in this he wrote and he wrote it for the king Yoshiahu, who Josiah. Yeah, Josiah. English. <laughs> I'm looking at the English here, and yeah, it, it, it's, it's a long story. If you, if you have the art scroll keynote, it's well worth reading this whole story because the way it's explained, this was the greatest Shuva movement in Jewish history where when he became king as a relatively young boy every, virtually everyone was worshipping idols the Torah had, had almost been forgotten almost been forgotten and it's a whole story but they find a book of Zavarim in the temple and he reads it and he's like he's like he's like blown away he says how come I didn't know this and he became a, a true Balshuva and he gets almost his entire kingdom to give up idol worship and to return to the Torah it's an amazing amazing period of history and he was so sure he was so sure that everyone had done tshuva, that everyone was on the highest level. When the king of Egypt 
ask permission to march through Israel in order to fight a war with, I don't remember, one of the eastern powers? He said no. Why? Because it says in the Torah that no army, like when we're doing God's will, no army not only will attack you, but will even march through you. So he felt that there's no reason to allow this king because the Torah promises us. Jeremiah came to him. Jeremiah loved this king and he said, they're not as perfect as you think. Let he, I, I'm telling you, nothing will happen. Just let them march through. And he refused. Which king is this again? Josiah. Okay, he's in the book of Kings. And Jeremiah <coughs> warns him and he doesn't listen and he goes out in battle and he's, he's killed in battle. And Jeremiah, even though he didn't listen to him, wrote this kina for him because he was such a, such a, a pure neshama. He got to the point he just couldn't see that anyone was harboring any idol worship anymore. So he writes, which, which is the original uh, kina. All kinot are models on this, on this kina. Kina, a poetic lamentation. Okay, Jeremiah was imprisoned. He was the one in the pit because his prophecies about the destruction of the temple, no one wanted to hear. No one wanted to hear, no one wanted to accept. And, you know, he complains to God bitterly that, like, like why are you putting me in this position? And God says, just, just, yeah, I've chosen you, that's it. That's it. Excuse me, there's something I don't get here. Because if the Torah says, don't let any armies come through your city, and Jeremiah says, let the the Egyptian army come, then there's a, a contradiction. No, no, there's not a contradiction. It says, when you are following all of God's commands, you'll have peace in your land. You'll have so much peace that, so that, that no one will come against you and no one will even march through you. But So, so he thought they were on that level. Okay. And Jeremiah said, we're not. We're not. Mm-hmm. And so that was his mistake. So there's no contradiction in the talk. The contradiction was in the king's mind. Yeah, he, he assumed something that was not true. In his, in his pureness. It wasn't like on purpose he wasn't listening to the prophet. He, he, he truly thought. Yeah, he truly thought. So one of the interesting things is, is God had revealed to Jeremiah that Nebuchadnezzar would destroy the temple and the people should not, very similar to, to this story, should not fight against him. They should not fight against him because we weren't on the level to fight against him. And the people did not listen 
And so when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, he looked favorably on Jeremiah because the word was out that Jeremiah was saying, don't, don't buck him. So when Nebuchadnezzar came, Jeremiah was like a very favored person. And then what happened was Gedaliah was uh, appointed governor of uh, what remained of Israel. Almost everyone was taken into captivity, but some Jews remained. And if you remember, the day after Rosh Hashanah is the Som Gedaliah. What happened? Gedaliah was assassinated. And so the whole political framework fell apart. And many of the Jews were then exiled to Egypt, and they, in a sense, forced Jeremiah to come with them. And so he was forced down to Egypt. And what happened to him is not exactly clear. That's how he dies. But the book of Jeremiah is actually not written by Jeremiah. It's written by his scribe, Baruch, who was written about in the book of, of yeah, in, in the book of Jeremiah. He had this uh, trusted scribe who he gave over all these prophecies to, and he wrote down the, the book of Jeremiah. Now Ezekiel, so we're running out of time here, lived in the same time. And he himself was taken into captivity to Babylonia. And it was on his way on, uh, on the river Kvar that he has this vision which is called the vision of the chariot. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that his vision was totally unique. In other words, as a prophet, he had learned tradition. And, and therefore, what made it unique, though, is that he revealed mm-hmm. this structure. Now, Ezekiel also had uh, many uh, prophecies of of doom and destruction, but also many, more than Jeremiah, prophecies about the future. And two of these, which are uh, very known to us, is one is that he gives over a vision of the third temple in the book of Ezekiel, obviously giving hope to people. They had just seen, not the third temple, the future temple, because this was the destruction of the first temple. And... The vision of the chariot is the Haftorah for Shavuot, but the vision of the dry bones, which is Ezekiel. This is not the only place, but it's the most graphic description that's connected to what's called Techiatamating, the resurrection of the dead. Now, we don't have time to actually get into the vision of Ezekiel, but I do want to give over one point, a very, very interesting point that if anyone has um, the book Inner Space by Rabbi Arya Kaplan, he goes into great detail about the vision of Ezekiel, but I, I'm only giving over one point because it's very connected to what we've been learning. 
And that is that prophecy comes out of meditation. And he describes, as we discussed last week, this is Rabbi Arya Kaplan describes Sefer Yitzira as a manual of meditation. He describes in a very, very unique and beautiful way the vision of Ezekiel is also a manual for meditation that leads to prophetic experience. And it's all based on the fourth verse, first chapter, fourth verse. And it says like this, he says, I saw and behold a stormy wind. I'll point out already that there are five elements in this verse. Okay? I saw and behold, number one, a stormy wind came from the north. Number two, a great cloud. Number three, and flashing fire. Number four, and a glow roundabout. And number five, and from its midst was the likes of the chashmal in the midst of the fire. So there's five elements here. I'll go over them. First, a stormy wind from the north. Number two, a great cloud. Number three, a flashing fire. Number four, a glow. And the word for glow here is very important, noga. And the fifth is, then he sees the chashmal. Later, in the 27th and 28th verse of chapter 1, he, t- he, he goes back and talks about the Hashmal and then says, after the Hashmal, then God spoke to him. After he saw the Hashmal, then God spoke to him. So, we're going to end with this, and it leads into a beautiful meditation. But one would really have to read this in inner space. Is he explains that these five elements are five stages of meditation and five stages of clearing the mind in order to reach a prophetic experience. And so the first one is, is perhaps the most significant of all of them is the first thing was the stormy wind came from the north. So he explains that when one sits to meditate, the first thing one experiences is a storm wind of thoughts. As soon as one wants to quiet the mind, right? Right? One's thoughts start whirling around one. Why from the north? Because the north always uh, implies two things, gavura and the unconscious, subconscious. Because the word for north is safon, which means safun, which means hidden. So when we try to quiet our mind, and matzpun, yeah, is, uh, yeah. Matzpun is the compass. Yeah. So it's subconscious and unconscious. 
Well, we, we, it could be the unconscious, subconscious, and superconscious. At all three different levels. So that's what he explains, that the first stage of meditating is getting past the stormwind. Now this is very, very similar to two other things. When, when Eliyahu and Navi went to the Sinai, and he went into a cave, and first, I don't remember in what order, first there's a storm wind and he expected to hear God's voice in the storm wind he didn't hear God's voice and then there was lightning and thunder and he expected to hear God's voice in the <coughs> lightning and thunder and then there was an earthquake didn't hear God's voice and then he heard this small still voice which is, con- which is connected to Chashmal what does Chashmal mean? Chash means silent. Mal means speaking. So the still, silent voice is a paradox in terms. How can a voice be silent? So the silent voice is like the Chashmah. So it's, it's very, very similar that Elijah also is expecting to hear God's voice in all these different things, but he had to get beyond each one. So Rabbi Arya Kaplan explain so the next one's the cloud it's you get past the reverie in your mind and the static you've quieted but then everything's cloudy you have to get beyond a cloudy vision and then you get to the fire and he describes that this is not the fire that we think of this is black fire and in in my book about light which someday will come out (laughs) there's a whole part about what does it mean the black light the black fire or like we say that the Torah is black fire on white fire what does it mean black fire so he he describes it and then there is a glow this is the fourth level, it's very significant because in Kabbalah we're told there are three levels of klipa of shells and then there's a fourth level which is called Noga Noga comes from the word shining Noga means it's like the Eitzadat Tovara there's good and not so good mixed up there and it's given over in Kabbalah and Hasidut that a lot of the myths that we do are clarifying what's called Klipa Noga now there's the three levels of Klipa are these three levels of, me- of blockage of shells that prevent us from getting to a, a pure vision then we get to the fourth where let's say good and bad are mixed together and that's what we've talked about all along that a prophet can get to this very high level and still hook into the, the not so good not so, that's what happened when the four who entered into the pardas they got to such a high level but it still was like the eight sadat tovara it was 
not clear. And then the fifth level is the Chashmal, and this represents pure paradox. We would think once we get through all of this, it would all be simple and easy. No, then you're confronted with pure paradox, and then God speaks to us. So that's how he describes it here. It's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant how he describes um, how in the vision itself is the manual for reaching the vision. I just want to, I don't know if anybody would be interested in this or if you would be interested in teaching it. I sort of like, I would love to learn Jewish history, but everybody may already know it. I don't. No, no, no one really knows it, and I put myself there also to really understand how these things fall in place chronologically is not simple. <laughs> not simple at all. But it's, I think it's critical. So is it something I mean, that we can learn? Ask other, ask yeah. other people. You could dedicate one class to it. Just like Asia Torah has what is called 5,000 years of history in one hour. <laughs> I would love to be dating. <laughs> I would love for us to do this meditation here, however. Ah, so we're going to do a meditation right now. Um, how did you translate Lago? Mm-hmm. Glow. No, uh, glow. A sh- a glow. Yes, glow. glow. So it ends with the idea of to get to this uh, pure vision, how many shells we have to go through. Most people have the hardest time simply with the first the first level. Um, most people have an extremely hard time, and I, I include myself. To get past the storm wind is like the hardest of all. Is is to even quiet the mind enough to get to the cloud is, is tremendous achievement. 